You can turn over to Romans chapter 8. And as we uh, get to know John a little more and his organization, we are do want to pray about, as a church, how we can uh, help him out and help the work when, when he goes and on these different trips. There's always needs, and, and uh, we'll let you know when, the, when those trips come up. But this morning we turn our hearts to uh, Romans chapter 8, and uh, we're back at the end of, of uh, Romans chapter 8, and today we want to look at verse 35. We've been going through this for several weeks, and uh, verse 35 reads, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And uh, we've been asking ourselves these questions, uh, five questions. We call them five unanswerable questions. The first questions, question that we looked at was all the way back in verse 31, where Paul asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the second question we looked at was in verse 32, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then verse 33 was the third question, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And then the fourth question, who is to condemn? And that's what we looked at last uh, uh, Sunday. And um, today we want to look at the fifth question. And these are unanswerable questions because uh, there, there is no answer. No one can do these things. So today we want to look at who shall separate us from the love of Christ. When you stop and you think about your salvation, when you stop and you think about the bare facts of who you are in Christ, I think the greatest lesson that a Christian can learn, in all honesty, is that nothing can undo what God has done in your life. Um, Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ, which is the love of God. It doesn't matter whether it's looking at the world's values or entertainment or sins, whatever it might be. Um, nothing can separate us from God after he has done that work in our heart and truly saved us. And so the idea that God's love trumps all, and there's no um, political inference there, by the way. I, after I put that title there, I thought, oh, I hope people don't think. No, but God's, God's love truly does trump everything. All right? And... Uh, I think that we need to understand that, that as Christians, that none of these things in this list, and and this is just kind of going over this uh, briefly today, and we'll continue this message next week, um, is going to triumph over the work that God has done in your heart. Um, It's kind of like a a, a mountain climber. You know, when you go rock climbing, you go mountain climbing, you get to a certain point where you're, you're tied off to a rope. And you have a guy on belay or you're, you're on, the, on, the, on the rope and, and you have a mechanism there that if you do fall, what's going to happen? Hopefully the guy on belay is going to, you know, catch you and he's going to pull that rope and it's going to tighten that device and you're going to stop. You're going to bounce a little bit, but you're not going to hit the ground, hopefully. All right. Well, it's the same way when we, it comes to Christ, the Christian walks through life secured by that cord of God's love. And his forgiveness and the work that he's done. And because the way through our lives are, is treacherous at best, 
We can slip. We can fall. But a disciple of Jesus Christ is secure. I want you to hear this this morning because every Christian is bound to God by a gracious, unchanging, eternal, indestructible love. And so when we come to this last question here that that Paul asks, the idea that God's love trumps all is clearly seen. And so as we look at this together, this one verse, verse 35, I just want us to go over a couple things here. He asks here, who will separate us or what will separate us when these hostile forces come against us? And they will. It doesn't matter whether you're living in Sudan. They're probably a lot more hostile there or here in Redwood City. If you stand up for Christ and you do the right thing, Jesus promises that you will endure some form of suffering. And so he begins here this wonderful chapter all the way back in verse 1. Remember what he starts off with. There is now, therefore what? No condemnation. And it's interesting that this chapter, this great chapter in the Word of God, ends with not only is there no condemnation in Christ, you know what? There isn't even any separation. There's no separation. And there's no separation because nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He ends the chapter there in verse 31 that way. But sometimes we have adversities. Sometimes we have adversaries. Um, and, and here Paul lists off quite a few. Uh, Paul says here that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, Sometimes as, as believers, as Christians, when we quote a verse and, and things, people say, oh, you know, you're too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. You know, at this point, Paul is not closing his eyes and plugging his ears saying, I know nothing's going to separate us from the love of God, even though all this horrible stuff is going on around me. He's not being naive. He's being factual. On the, on the matter of fact, he even opens up his arms and he says, you know what? Bring it on. Whatever it is the world has to throw at you. He invites them to come forward. And he says, nevertheless, and at the same time, nothing will ever succeed in detaching us from Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful message. I mean, that should motivate us even more to go out to a lost and dying world and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing that when God transforms that heart, whether it's here, in Sudan, in India, wherever it may be, when someone comes to Christ, nothing, nothing will ever reverse that. That is a a very dynamic claim that the Word of God makes. And so Paul goes on here in verse 35, and he begins to list some things. He lists seven, basically. Maybe he did that on purpose, maybe not. But they're great forces, But even though they're great forces, all of them, Paul wants us to understand, will fail. None of these forces will succeed in overturning what God has done in our lives. So let's look at these, these these adversaries that come against us, these adversities. The first one there in verse 35, he simply asks, tribulation, shall tribulation. That word tribulation is interesting. Um, the first circumstance of life that might be thought to be able to separate 
a Christian from the love of God is tribulation or trouble. Um, tribulation, that word comes from the idea of a... Uh, uh, Back in that time, they would harvest grain and they would put it basically in a a threshing sledge and they would put the grain down there and they had this giant wheel and and they would have an animal or a human being even turn this this wheel and it would grind the, the, the grain down. It's known as the threshing floor. And see like a, a sled that's covered on the bottom with these, 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 this stone and metal maybe. And it was dragged over the stalks to separate the heads of grain from the chaff. That instrument that they used was, was basically called a tribulum. Because it pressed out the grain. And you, can, you can hear the similarity, tribulation, tribulum, same thing. And it's a, it's a very vivid picture of what God allows us to go through sometimes. Because circumstances frequently press down on people so forcefully and so unrelentingly that it, it seems that, boy, it just seems like they're going to be squashed. <laughs> it seems like it's, it's, it's impossible to get out of this situation. Maybe you're here this morning and you've experienced harsh pressures in your life. Life has been hard. Maybe... You weren't treated right as a child. Maybe you were abused. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe you've been deprived of a husband or wife or other family members to come alongside of you. Maybe you've undergone sickness, severe sickness. And you may be here this morning and your strength is nearly gone. But Paul says, I want you to understand very clearly that no tribulation, however severe it might be, beloved, will separate you from God's love, which is in Christ Jesus. Then he moves on and he says, not only tribulation or trouble, but also distress. Distress. That's the second thing here. The second circumstance that Paul brings up. And it, it, it could be related to his hardship, but it has a different idea than the first word. Because the first word is kind of talking about a, uh, an external pressure coming down on you and forcing you to feel that pressure. Here the word is, is basically compu- composed of two separate words which carry the idea of a very narrow space. A very narrow space. And so the idea is that of being pressed down by circumstances. That's what tribulation means. But here it means being confined in a narrow, oppressive space. That's kind of the distress that Paul is talking about. Maybe you're in a job that's kind of a dead-end job. Maybe you started this company young and now you're old and still haven't promoted various places and you're looking at mortgage payments and things beyond and you just can't seem to get ahead. And there's real no light at the end of the tunnel. It's a narrow place to be in. There's nowhere to go. You have a family to support. 
and yet you can feel that pressure. Or maybe you're a lady in her late 30s who has several children and makes tremendous demands upon her. You have to survive on a meager budget. There's no real future. Your life consists of school, supermarkets, babysitters. And you feel squished. See, the best way to realize that Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, has fixed his love upon you and that nothing is ever, ever going to separate you from his love. You may be in narrow straits right now, but you're an heir of heaven. And one day, your horizons will be vast. Nothing will deprive you of this destiny that God has called you to. Because nothing, not even hardship, will be able to separate you from the love of Christ. Well, he moves on. Thirdly, he says persecution. He says persecution won't even separate us. It contains the idea of being pursued by someone intent on harming you. If you've ever been in a situation where someone's chasing you, and if they catch you, you're in a lot of trouble, you know exactly what I mean. It denotes harm that is relentless. It it doesn't stop. That's why I said we don't really understand, I think, here in America, this kind of persecution. I mean, you know, we may get made fun of once in a while or called a name or because of our conservative values or whatever it might be. But we have no idea what it means to be persecuted. Because in other parts of the world, beloved, being persecuted means you could lose your life. You know, that's why Jesus says, you know what, if you're going to follow me, be willing to take up your what? Your cross. Your cross isn't something you wear around your neck. It's not a little piece of gold. It's an instrument of death. And so what Jesus was telling his disciples is, you better be ready to die for me. And you know what? We're coming to a time, I think even in our own country, where you know what? We're going to have to face that kind of persecution eventually. We may not face it now like the rest of the world does in some places for their Christian faith. But here we have subtle persecutions. But I think they're going to grow stronger and stronger. But two things you can be sure of this morning. Persecutions are a normal response to any forthright Christian witness or stand. If you're going to stand up for Christ, I guarantee you, you're going to feel some form of persecution. And secondly, we will experience them to the extent that we confront the world with the claims of Christ. Sometimes I'll talk to a Christian, they've been a Christian a long time, and they'll say, well, I don't ever go through any persecution. I don't know what you're talking about. And I say, well, you better examine your Christian life. Because if you're not feeling any form of persecution whatsoever, it may be that people don't know what you're standing for. Maybe they don't even know you're a Christian. Maybe you're a Christian on Sundays, but the rest of the week you live so much like the world that nobody could ever see that you would even go to church on Sunday. So we have to be focused on what this means. Persecution may mean being passed over for some honor or some promotion. But it's not like it is in other countries where we could literally 
lose our life for the cause of Christ. John said in, in, or Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world you will have what? Trouble. You will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I mean, Jesus says, he promises to the believer that, you know what, this is not going to be an easy task for you. This isn't something that you march down the aisle, raise your hand, and then live the rest of your earthly life happy, happy, happy in Jesus and the health, wealth, and, and all that. That's not what the Christian life is about. I mean, persecutions may separate us from a more lucrative, worldly future or an attractive image before the world, but persecutions will never separate us from Christ's love, ever. That's a good thing to understand. Fourthly here, he speaks of famine. He says, you know what? Not even famine. Well, why would he bring this up? Well, you know what? Most of the ancient world has experienced famine at one time or another. We don't have any clue what this really means to us. I mean, we go on a 10-day fast and we think, oh, we're famished. (laughs) We have no idea. I mean, can you imagine getting a little handful of rice to eat, and that's it, all day. That's it. And you don't know when you're going to get that handful of rice next. Or being able to get a, a cup of water that you can actually drink. It's not filled with some infectious disease. I mean, we have it so well here in America, we, we, we can't even imagine what it's like. But you know what? Famine could result from a lack of rain. It could, it could result from the failure of the crops, natural disasters, earthquakes, fires, floods, locusts. Even war can cause famine. And it's sad today that you think that hunger has not been eliminated for much of the world's population. I mean, we live in a world where, hey, we want something to eat, we go to the restaurant, right? We don't even think about it. We go to the refrigerator, there's food there. Hunger is a terrible, terrible thing. Have you ever been hungry? Have you ever been hungry and you couldn't eat? You weren't able to eat? It's not a nice feeling. Your stomach's growling. You get miserable. You get edgy. You get irritated. I just want something to eat. And a lot of times those are self-imposed times when we're going through a fast or we're going on a diet or we're doing something like that. But can you imagine being hungry and not having access to food? That's just something that's so foreign to us we can't even understand it even though we talk about it. But even that, even though hunger is such a horrible thing, famine, even that cannot detach us from Christ, Paul says. And then he says nakedness. See, in Paul's day, nakedness had to do with poverty. It didn't have to do with undress, as we think of it today. It had to do with people who couldn't afford to buy any clothes. They ran around half-naked because they had nothing else to wear. And it's really corresponding to the previous term there in the list, famine. But it may refer to more economic hard times deriving from natural disasters or war. You know, you see sometimes where they have these earthquakes and afterwards you see it on the news, these people. I mean, they're, they're dressed in rags. They have nothing. Everything they have is gone. That's hard for us to comprehend. 
But even that, as horrible as it may be, doesn't separate us. Then he goes on, he says, danger. I mean, there's a lot of different types of danger in the world today. But here, basically, he's talking about Christians who are exposed to danger simply for being Christian. Some of the places John spoke of this morning are places of danger for Christians. If you go there and you go out on the street and you start proclaiming Christ and with your Bible and handing out Bibles, they'll probably, you probably won't last the end of the day. They'll come and arrest you and probably try you and execute you. They don't put up with that kind of stuff. And just as in the New Testament times, in some Christian countries today, okay, in some parts of the world, Christians are arrested. They're tried. They're imprisoned. One individual wrote this. He says, These dangers at some times and in some countries are exceedingly many and great, and at all times and in all countries are more or less numerous and trying. If God were not their protector, even in this land of freedom, the followers of the Lamb would be cut off or injured. It is the Lord's providence that averts such injuries or overrules events for the protection of his people. This, too, is little consideration uh, considered even by themselves and would be thought a most unfounded uh, or fantastic idea by the world. But let the Christian habitually consider his safety and protection as secured by the Lord rather than by the liberality of his times. That time never yet was when the Lord's people could be safe if circumstances removed restraint from the wicked. Those who boast of their unbounded uh, liberality would, if in situations calculated to develop their natural hatred of the truth, prove, after all, bitter persecutors. What's he saying in in that quote? He's saying, you know what? If it wasn't for God, all of us would face a lot more persecution and a lot more danger. Have you ever been in a situation where, boy, you were in a dangerous situation? Maybe you were in a, 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 almost a car accident or something, and you're thinking, wow, how did I get out of that? That was amazing. You know what? Don't forget, God is watching over you. He really is. And, and we can't forget that, even though we're not pressed in like some countries are with persecution and, and, and all these things that Paul's stating. One day, it may come right here. The fourth, or the last thing here, the seventh thing, he talks about the sword. And he uses this last, I think, because it basically pushes the violence to the peak. Um, You know, this is the extreme. Um, Christians are executed and murdered for their faith, even today. This word used for sword here, it refers to an assassin's dagger. That's the idea. And what he's saying is, even though you may have assassins coming after you, imminent death can't separate you from Christ's love. Paul experienced a lot of adversity when he served Christ. And those trials never broke the bond of love that Paul experienced. Not once. And what he wants us to see here this morning is that no adversity, no matter what you're going through, no matter how harsh it may be, The one thing that you can be sure of is that your bond with Christ is everlasting. 
I mean, think about it. It even happened in the early church. Stephen was an early martyr. James, others followed. And pretty soon there's a trail of, of blood that marks the execution, the martyrdom of Christians. Good, good book to read is Fox's Book of Martyrs. Pick that up and read it someday. I mean, it really opened your eyes up to what some of these people went through for the cause of Christ. See, that's why here he, he quotes the next verse there, Psalm forty-four twenty-two, For your sake we're, we face death all day long and we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Um, this was literally true throughout history. And that's Paul's point. I mean, even today, I don't know what the going number is now, but it's probably every year millions of, of Christians are, are slaughtered for their faith. And so we have to stop and we have to be reminded that, you know what? All those things are secured. We're secured to Christ because of his sacrifice, because of his love for us. And not one of these things can even come close to breaking that bond that we have. I think it's important to point out too there in verse 35, when it talks about the love of Christ, who, will separate us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You know, you can take that one of two ways. You can take that as either our love for Christ or Christ's love for us. Interesting thing, when you look at that in the original language, it's not referring to our love for Christ. It's referring to his love for us. Because if it was referring to our love for Christ, that could probably be broken at some point because we're human. But it's not referring to that. It's referring to Christ's love for us. And we can stand here today assured of the fact that if we put our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we've trusted in the work that he's done on Calvary instead of our own works that we like to kind of perform, then we have that kind of bond. Three things here the love of Christ talks about. Christ's love draws out of ourselves, draws us out of ourselves and to him in the first place. That's what Christ's love does. It, it draws and it wins disciples. That's what John was saying. You can't just go there to these countries war and torn where you have naked and, and, and people in famine and say, oh, you know, here, just let me tell you, God, God loved the world, you know, and, and you know, here, God bless you, see you later. That's not what the book of James says. But it's the love of Christ that will draw and win disciples. I read a story this past week of a missionary to Korea. His name was Harold Vocal, and he was in Korea at the time of the Korean War. And he was drafted into the army, and he was assigned to a prisoner of war camp <laughs> as a chaplain. And tens of thousands of North Koreans were imprisoned in these camps. Some were communists. And they were always stirring up, you know, riots and rebellion. And it says, the story says when he first entered the camp, he immediately won the men's interest because he could speak their language. And he said he wanted to teach them a song. And so he got them all together. And it was the Korean version of a song we probably all know well. And he taught it to them in Sunday school. It simply says, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. 
Little ones, to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And you say, well, that's kind of simplistic. When the chaplain finished teaching this in one camp, he would go to the second camp, and he would repeat until he covered all the POW camps in Korea. And then he went around again, and this time he taught a few simple things about this person who they called Jesus. And he said, this person loves the Koreans. He died for, the, for you. And he did this for months. And as a result of his ministry, thousands became believers. They became followers of Christ. And all of a sudden, discipline in these camps improved. And the communists, they had difficulty finding any followers And listen to this, when the truce finally came and the country was divided at the infamous 38 parallel, thousands of these former prisoners of war refused to return to North Korea and communism, and instead they chose to live in the South where they could continue to learn about and worship Christ. See, there's no greater message, beloved, than the message about the love of Jesus Christ. It's captured the imagination. It's won the hearts of millions of people throughout history. Secondly, the love of Christ satisfies those it has drawn and won as disciples. It not only draws you in the first place, but it satisfies you. You know, once you become a believer, once you have tasted of the love of Christ, nothing will ever satisfy you again. Not all the pleasures of the world, not all the idols of the world. Nothing can satisfy the believer like the love of Christ. And thirdly, in closing here, the love of Christ not only draws and satisfies, but it also keeps us safe forever. That's what Paul's saying here in this passage. Donald Gray Barnhouse says this about this passage. He says, The love of Christ was eternal, for it was the love which moved him to leave heaven's throne and come down to this earth to redeem us. That love was deep, for it was the love which urged him on to the end of the road as he humbled himself to death, even death of the cross. That love was broad. For it was that love which opened the arms of God to all the world of sinners and made it possible for the very one who nailed him to the cross to be forgiven and come back to the Father's heart. And that love is unchanging, he goes on. He says, for it is that love which comes to us today in the midst of our need, whatever it may be, and takes us out of the darkness and into the light, from doubt to certainty, from death to life. See, that love is presented to us in this text. And it stands for permanence. I mean, it's, it's as if God is, is bending over and he's whispering in our ear, my son is not fickle. Christ is not fickle. When he does something, it's done. And when you think of all that Christ did, he came down from heaven to this sin-stained earth. He took on a body, a physical body. And then he went through years in that body as God. Finally, to die on a cross, to be mocked, to be ridiculed. He paid the sins of all those who would ever put their faith, their trust in him. 
And even on the cross, his love had him cry out, Father, what? Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Don't ever doubt that God loves you. Don't ever doubt that once God affects change in your heart and your life, and you come to Christ humbly as a broken sinner, where nowhere, you can't go anywhere else, you come to Christ and you, you admit your sin, and you say, you know what, Lord, I, I need to be saved. Don't ever think that once that transaction takes place, that somehow it can be undone. Because it can't. That's what Paul wants us to see. And you say, well, that's okay for Paul. But, you know, I mean, he was an apostle. How can he relate to all these things that he, he listed here? Famine and sword. and I just want to read this short passage out of 2 Corinthians, and then we'll pray and have our communion time together. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. This is Paul speaking. He says, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking, I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments. He's giving his experience here with countless beatings, often near to death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, And you know what? Apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches who is weak. And I am not weak. Who is made full? And I am not indignant. See, everything Paul speaks about there in Romans 8, he went through. He experienced. So he can definitely speak to the reality of those things. And eventually, as we know, he was martyred. So Paul isn't just kind of flying off the handle here. He's not just coming up with some fancy story to tell us. He went through these things. He understood it. And yet he wants us to understand not one of these things was able to separate him from the love of Christ. And today he is in the presence of Christ in heaven and he will be forever just like any who die in the Lord. If you have truly tasted of God's love, if you haven't, why not make today the day? Why would you settle for anything less? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you can provide us with a salvation so great that it can never, ever be overturned. And as we continue this message next week, we're going to see even more things that come against us. But even those aren't able to overturn what you've done. Lord, I pray for individuals here today. I pray that you would 
draw their hearts to you. We ask, Lord, that if there's any here who's yet to put their faith or trust in you as their, your, as their Lord and Savior, Lord, that you would do that work of salvation, that you would give them uh, new eyes to see their, their sinfulness, to see their need of a Savior. Lord, we thank you that your Son willingly paid the price for our sins. And Lord, we, we know that your love is, is made so real to us through the sacrifice of your Son. And Father, we pray today that you would just teach us more about the love of God, more about the love of Christ. Teach us more about the, our security in Christ. And Father, that that would motivate us to go out into this lost and dying world and to preach the gospel with a boldness and a passion that we didn't before. Lord, that we would see many lives affected, cause for change, transformed by your grace. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.